Palm Sunday and think that it was Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem, our Messiah, humbling himself. And as he rode into Jerusalem, they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, and put palm leaves down for him to walk across and celebrated him. And it's amazing to me the fickleness of people because in just a few days, that same crowd was saying, crucify him. How could that be? Well, it was God's will that he be crucified. But Jesus never, never leaned on the arm of man. He leaned on God. And are you thankful he went all the way to the cross, didn't back off, did not back down, uh, but he went all the way to the cross and suffered for you and me. Amen. Are you thankful? And so that's why I'm going to talk to you today about the cross. I'm going to talk to you about the cross because the, the cross preceded the crown. And the cross, of course, preceded the resurrection. So we're going to read. I want to read quickly through the story of his crucifixion. And I'm going to just talk to you today about when Jesus was crucified. What did it do for you and me? What does it mean for us today? So let's read. Everybody's standing with me. Let's read the word of God. Honor the word of God by reading it. Mark 15, starting at verse 15. Pilate wanted to please the people, so he set Barabbas free for them. And he told the soldiers to beat Jesus with whips. Then he handed him over to the soldiers to be killed on a cross. Pilate's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's palace called the Praetorium. They called all the other soldiers together and they mocked him. They put a purple robe on him, made a crown from thorny branches and put it on his head. Then they began shouting, welcome king of the Jews. They kept on beating his head with a stick, spitting on him. Ooh, I would not want to be them. Ooh, on the judgment when that's played back. And then they bowed down on their knees and pretended to honor him as a king. And after they finished making fun of him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him out of the palace to be killed on a cross, jumping to 25, verse 25. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they nailed Jesus to the cross. There was a sign with the charge against him written on it, and it said, the king of the Jews. They also nailed two criminals to crosses beside Jesus, one on the right and the other on the left. People walked by and they said bad things to Jesus. They shook their heads and said, You said you could destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Well, save yourself then. Come down from that cross. The leading priests and the teachers of the law were also there, the ones who knew the word of God, who had taught the people to look for the Messiah. And look what they're doing. The teachers of the word didn't recognize the word. Watch this. The leading priests, teachers of the law, made fun of Jesus like the other people did. And they said to each other, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. If he's really the Messiah, the King of Israel, he should come down from the cross now. And if he comes down when we see this, then we'll believe in him. And the criminals on the crosses beside Jesus also said bad things to him. All right, three hours later at noon, the whole country became dark. Nature began to grieve. This darkness continued until three o'clock. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out loudly, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, 
Why have you left me alone? Some of the people standing there heard this and they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran there or one man there ran and got a sponge, filled the sponge with sour wine and tied it on a stick. And then he used the stick to reach it up and give the sponge to Jesus to get a drink from it. And the man said, we should wait now and see if Elijah will come to take him down from the cross. And then Jesus cried out loudly and everybody say what happened? He died. He didn't kind of die or figuratively die. He died. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two pieces. The terror started at the top and tore all the way to the bottom. The army officer who was standing there in front of the cross saw what happened when Jesus died. And the officer said, this man really was the son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. What can we say the way you went to the cross for us, Lord? We're so thankful. We thank you today, Lord, that you died in our place. We thank you that you did not shrink back. We thank you, Lord, that you obeyed the Father all the way to the cross, humbled yourself all the way to the cross. Now, Lord, help us to understand the cross better today and to leave this building today with thankful hearts over all that you have done as we march toward Easter, in Jesus' name. Breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart. I receive the word as the word of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, Jesus loves you, this I know, amen. Now, this is the Bible's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. Six hours later, He died five days after that, or three days after that, he rose from the dead. Five days from Palm Sunday, he was crucified. The the crucifixion of Jesus was, in my opinion, and I believe it's, it's accurate, is the ground zero of all of history. There's nothing in history that can equate to, measure up to, compare to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in its impact, in its importance, in its, in its power, in the six grueling hours between nine o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon when he died, the ancient battle reaching all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that ancient battle between good and evil reached its climax at the cross of Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus is the central focus of your Bible. You look at your Bible today and I want you to know that that Bible From stem to stern, Genesis to Revelation is all about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All Old Testament books look forward to his crucifixion, and the New Testament books all look back on his crucifixion. All 39 books of the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the feasts, the kings, the prophets, everything that's in there, all the stories of the Old Testament, illustrate and anticipate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Amen. And the 29 books of the New Testament all narrate and celebrate and elaborate on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what it means for you and for me. At the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a once for all, never needed to be done again, once for all sacrifice was made for the souls of men. Epic in its scope, eternal in its reach, the cross of Christ. History climax right there at the crucifixion of Christ. So what exactly 
did happen on the cross. You know, we hear about the cross. People wear little crosses all the time. Catholics, you know, have crosses everywhere. And I remember when I first got saved, I got a cross and wore it everywhere. Got a ring cross and cross on my Bible cover and crosses everywhere. But what did the cross do for you and for me? What, what is the meaning of the cross? What really happened there where the Son of God, given by God for our sins, what happened there when he died, when he said, it is finished, and gave up the ghost, and he died? What happened on the cross? Well, I'm going to bring you a real simple message today. But you know, I've learned that a lot of Christians uh, don't really understand exactly what the cross did for us. How many of you are thankful for the cross? How many of you can say, when I went to the cross by faith and received what Jesus did for me, my life was changed. Amen. Can we give him a hand of praise for the cross today? Amen. Now, some of what I'm going to say is not going to be real revelation for you, but I'm going to expand on it anyway. And and I want to just glorify God today for what Jesus did on the cross, because, hey, if not for the cross, I wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here, and only God knows where we would be, and I don't like the thought of where I would be if not for the cross, amen? Now, first on the cross, Jesus took our sin away. He took our sin away. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a vivid illustration of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and it's the story of the scapegoat. Now, when I say the real word scapegoat, um, we tend to think of it in the way we use it today, that he became a scapegoat for my, for, for my crimes. It's when you cause someone else to be blamed for what you did. You make them a scapegoat, and that's what we think of when we think of scapegoat. But that word comes all the way from the Old Testament, And what God did with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. As the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, God spoke to Aaron, the high priest. And he said, Aaron, here's what I want you to do. I want you to select a goat. I want you to get a goat. And I want you to lay your hands on the head of that goat. And when you lay your hands on the head of that goat, I want you to confess all the wickedness and all the rebellion and all the sins of the people on the head of that goat. And then, Aaron, I want you to take that goat to the edge of the wilderness, and I want you to turn him loose and let him wander away in the wilderness, never to return. And so that goat would wander away and get smaller and smaller in the distance until he disappeared. And it was God's way of saying, now I have removed your sin from you, never to return again. Now that's what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. He became our scapegoat. Our sins were placed on him. Just like Aaron said, Lord, I've got my hands on this goat. And, and Lord, forgive us for our adulteries, for our thefts, for our covetousness. Forgive us, Lord, for all the sins that we have committed against you. And he would, figuratively speaking, place those sins on the head of that goat. And that goat would walk away to disappear and never come back again. That's what in God's mysterious dealings on our behalf did with Jesus Christ. He placed our sins on him. And Jesus carried them away, never to return again. That's why Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It was at that very moment, my sins, your sins, the sins of the entire. Can you imagine the weight of that? Can you imagine if we just took the people in this room and we took all of our collective sins, just our sins, you and me, I think I've sinned a little bit. What about you? Come on, everybody. Don't look at me so holy with a halo over your head. So I've sinned at least once this new year, Pastor Jeff. Come on. But just if we took the sins of the people in this room, just just these people, and we placed them on Jesus, all of our sins, all the mistakes, all the times we've gone astray, all the times we've cursed, and all the times we've done bad things, and we placed them on him. Can you imagine taking the guilt of just the sins of the people in this room, but Jesus took the sins of the entire human race, past, present, and future? All of them. He took all of them. The Lord has laid, who did it? The Lord, the Lord has laid. God did it. God has laid on him, on his only son. God did it. God laid on his only son's head the iniquity of us all, of us all, all of us. Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore it. That means he felt the weight of it. He felt the import of it. He felt the gravity of it. He, he bore it. He bore it. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Amen, amen, amen. And on the cross, watch this, on the cross, he carried them away forever. He carried them, as that scapegoat, figuratively, metaphorically, carried the sins of the people of Israel away, never to return. Jesus took them really away, never to return. Now, there's a fancy theological word for this, and it's called expiation. I want you to say with me, expiation. Try it again, because you act like you, I don't know if I can say that. Try it again, expiation. We're going to learn a big word today, expiation. Say it one more time. One, two, three, expiation. Expiation means the literal removal of our sin and guilt by putting an end to it. He expiated our sin. He literally removed our sin from us and put an end to it. Christ's death removed, expiated, took away forever. Our sin and the guilt that came with our sin. This is why John the Baptist, remember when John the Baptist was baptizing people and all of a sudden here comes Jesus and he stopped everything and John pointed to him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Say it with me. Takes away the sin of the world. There, that echoes back to the scapegoat. He takes away the sin of the world. How many of you are so glad that God took your sin completely and totally away. Come on, everybody. He took it away. As a kid, I used to be fascinated with chalkboards in, in school. If I was fascinated that teacher could get up there and she could write something on that, just fill that chalkboard with writing. And I loved it when it came time to erase. There's just something about just being able to write all those ideas and thoughts and words and numbers up there and then just 
erase it all away. But here's what I noticed. After she erased it, there was still white residue, white chalk residue on that chalkboard. It wasn't completely gone. Just the print was erased away, but it wasn't completely gone. Not the residue, not, not the chalk residue. The janitor had to come in with a sponge and water, and he would wash the chalkboard, and when he was done, it was as if chalk was never there. Now, let me tell you, Jesus doesn't just erase it with an eraser. He comes in with the sponge of his compassion and, and the washing of his blood. And he washes that, that chalkboard. Because listen, you've got a chalkboard inside of you and it's called your conscience. And on the chalkboard of your conscience are the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not this and that and the other. And, and besides all of those commandments are the words guilty, 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 guilty. Because the Bible says God has put his commandments in your heart. Our conscience knows right from wrong because God put his commandments, he wrote them on our heart, our conscience, and guilt comes from those words, guilty, messed up, broke this one, broke that one, broke the other one, and that's where guilt comes from. And that's why people walk around so filled with guilt, drinking it away, drugging it away, trying to deny it away. But Jesus comes along and he says, listen, you're not going to get rid of it by drinking or drugging or thinking it away or denying it away. There's still going to be the residue. You got to let me wash it away by the blood shed for you. And he washes it away. And when he washes it away, it's as if it was never there. Come on, everybody. Give God praise. It's as if he was never there. That's why I love the word justification. Justification is just as if I never did it. Amen? Amen. So John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it gets better than that. On the cross, not only did he take our sin away, but he placed his righteousness on us on the cross. Listen, there was a divine trade-off, and it was a good trade-off. I mean, everybody should take advantage of this trade-off. Because God said, if you put your faith in my son... I'm going to put your sin on him, and he's going to take it away, never to return. And I'm going to take his righteousness, and I'm going to place it on you. And not only are you going to have all your sins washed away as if they never happened, but I'm going to impute to you the perfect walk my son walked while he was on the earth. Because he was tempted in all points like we are, yet he never sinned. And having never sinned, God takes that walk and he imputes it to us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He made Jesus who never sinned, who knew no sin, to be sin for us on the cross. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, i got to read the Message Bible to you. Here's what it says. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. He put the wrong on him who never did any wrong that we might be right with God. 
can we just lift our hands and say, Jesus, thank you. That you were blamed for my sin, and now you've given me your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Amen. Can we give him another hand of praise today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be made right with God. So on the cross, our sins were placed on him, and his righteousness, in turn, was placed on us. Could it get any better than that? Yes, and I'm about to tell you how. Because the first thing he did was expiation. He carried our sins away. But the second thing he did was reconciliation. Jesus, on the cross, reconciled us to God. So where expiation is about the removal of our sins, reconciliation is about the removal, watch this, of our alienation from God. Expiation removes our sins. Reconciliation removes our alienation from God. Now, I'm about to tell you some very powerful truths. First of all, reconciliation, what's it mean? The the dictionary simply says, to restore to friendship or harmony. When there's a reconciliation, we talk about marital reconciliation and reconciliation among friends. You need to go be reconciled to them. You need to make it right with them and get reconciled. We hear that word all the time. But, oh, it's a huge word, a big word when it comes to the cross. Because on the cross... Jesus reconciled us to God and his reconciliation that he brought about by his death is the greatest reconciliation of all time. Can I say it again? It is the greatest reconciliation of all time, what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because let me tell you the truth about you and me. Are you ready for some Bible truth? Not my truth, not somebody else's truth. Here's Bible truth about you and me. The Bible says that because of our sins, we were indeed alienated, separated from God. We were alienated and separated from God. And the Bible says that our alienation and separation were total and complete. The relationship between us and God was thoroughly, completely, consummately destroyed, shattered, and broken. By sin. Before Christ, there was no relationship between man and God. Not what the blood did. You and I, what were you doing when you heard the gospel and got saved? I guarantee you, you were not praising God and pleasing him. We were alienated. We were separated. If Jesus had not brought reconciliation, we would be alienated and separated today. And and listen... Our relationship with God wasn't just broken. The Bible goes so far as to say we were enemies of his. Whoa, wait a minute now. I might have done a lot of things, but I was not the enemy of God. I thought God was kind of cool if I ever even thought about him. You know, God. But the Bible says I was his enemy. Listen to how the Bible describes our relationship with God before we were saved. Once, Paul writes, Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So notice he deals with your thoughts and your behavior in one verse. He said, how were we alienated from God? In our minds and in our lifestyles. 
we were alienated and actually enemies of God. You say, well, I was God's enemy. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I was God's enemy. Well, that's what it just said. Let God be true and every man a liar. And the word for enemy here is very, very strong. It means somebody who is openly hostile, a personal enemy, and then an enemy combatant. An enemy combatant. I knew this was going to be a jump up and shout message. Y'all hold back. You're overwhelming me. You know why it's so quiet in here? Because we're thinking, ooh, that's heavy stuff. But you know what is the truth? We need to hear this, folks. That book that was written, I'm okay, you're okay, that's baloney. The human race is not okay. Does it take a rocket scientist to look out there right now at our culture, at the world culture, and say we're not the enemy of God? An enemy combatant. The Bible says we were enemies. You say, well, how can that be? Well, let me tell you how we were enemy combatants. That one verse told us a lot. Our sinful lifestyles made us God's enemies. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, all of us used to live following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. We were following sin. Every time sin called, you who, we went. We were following sin, serving sin, right? Come on, everybody. By our very nature. Look what he says. It was inborn. By your very nature. We were subject, subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So it was our sinful lifestyles, but it was also our sinful thinking, Paul said we were enemies in our minds, the way we thought. Our thoughts were against God. We weren't thinking pure thoughts, good thoughts, godly thoughts. We were thinking thoughts that were against God. And that's why we needed a reconciler, because we were thinking thoughts that were against God, that that made us the enemies of God. Our open rebellion against his will and ways made us God's enemies. Isaiah said, we've turned everyone. Everybody say everyone. Turn to your neighbor and say, that means you. No, I don't want you to do that. You might get hit. Don't do that. Just say it to yourself. That means me. We, we, we've turned, how many of us? Everyone, all of us. We've turned everyone to his own way, not God's way, our own way. We were in open rebellion. You know that old saying when I was growing up? Do your own thing. That's just the dumbest thing that you could ever live by. Do your own thing. If you do your own thing, you're going to be an enemy of God. Do your own thing. How about do his thing? Amen? And and, and then we loved, we loved, here's another way we were the enemies of God. We loved this fallen, ungodly world. We loved this fallen, ungodly world. We embraced this fallen world's values, morals, ethics, and rebellion against God. And that made us his enemy because we were dating somebody that hated God. We were dating, romancing somebody that hated God. Don't love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but are of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. That's the way the Bible views the world. James said, don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? So I love God's creation. I love the birds and the flowers and the tree. I love God's creation. But he's not talking about that here. When he says, don't be a friend of the world, he's talking about the world's ways. It's morality, or I should say it's immorality. 
It's godlessness. It's hate for God, hate for Christ, hate for the Bible. If you love that world, how can you say you love God? Because you're romancing somebody who hates him. But good news, here's the good news. You ready for some good news? Y'all are looking real somber. You ready for some good news? Jesus' death on the cross restored our broken, alienated relationship with God and reconciled us to him. Reconciled us to him. Reconciled us to him. Listen to what the Bible says, Romans 5, verse 10, for if while we were, here it is again, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, reconciled to God through, how? Through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I look at it this way, the cross, the cross. I say this a lot, but I can't get away from it. God does everything on purpose. There's nothing surrounding the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that God didn't order. So here he is, he's on a cross. He's stretched out on a cross. He could have gotten out of it. He said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He knew what was coming, the beating, the humiliation, the mocking, ridicule, all of that. I think what he dreaded most was hanging on the tree. That moment when he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that is when, for the first time in eternity past and ever, ever again, the son felt separation from the father. Why have you forsaken me? There he is on that cross, hands stretched out horizontally, body pointed vertically, because that's the shape of the cross. And I see something there. God does everything on purpose. Here's what I see. The horizontal, this way. It's as if God were saying, let me embrace you through my son. I, I picture Jesus saying, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me. Let me hug you. That's what I see on the cross. This way, this way. And, and, and when we say, okay, I repent. Oh, Lord, forgive me my sin. I repent. And we come to him. Then he takes us this way. And here's God's hand reaching down. And he takes our hand and reaches up. He says, now that you've let me embrace you and carry your sin away, let's have a reconciliation party. Because I'm going to take your hand and I'm going to place it in God's hand. And you're going to be reconciled to the Father. And so we reach up. And, and, and I remember sitting in my little jail cell there when I prayed that prayer. And for the first time in my whole life, the love of God came into my heart. The Bible says that when we come to him, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. Suddenly there was reconciliation. It's like somebody plugged me into a light socket. And I got lit with the love of God, the life of God, the presence of God, relationship with God. I was a reconciled young man, and it changed my life. Amen? Amen. Come on, everybody. 
So Jesus' death on the cross brought expiation by removing our sin and guilt and taking it away never to return. And it brought reconciliation by healing our broken relationship with God forever. How many of you are so thankful you can get up in the morning and say, good morning, Father? Abba, Father. How many of you are so, this week you needed him somehow, some way. And you said, Lord, help me. I need provision. I need your peace. I need your strength. I need something. And your heavenly father, you have been reconciled to, said, you got it because now you're my child. You're no longer against me as an enemy, but now you're my child. And so I'm going to do anything you ask me to do as long as it's according to my will. Come on, everybody. Praise him. Jesus hung there on that cross for you and for me, and the work was done. And when he said, it is finished, folks, it was finished. It was finished. Now, what does that mean for us today? If you don't know Jesus, it means his hand is reaching out to you this way. This part of the cross is what you need to be looking at if you don't know him. If you're away from him, gotten away from the Lord, you've slidden back some, or if you're not sure you know him at all, this part of the cross right here is what's calling out to you. Come unto me. Come unto me. You're, you're laboring and you're heavy laden under sin. Come unto me, and I'm going to give you rest. If you know him, then we need to look up and we need to go this way. And we need to be so thankful this week as we head towards Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We need to be so thankful that after walking through Jerusalem after going in on a donkey and, and seeing all the praises of the people, he was turned on, and the same crowd called for his crucifixion and his death. But our Lord went all the way to the cross and there expiated our sins and reconciled us to God. Can we stand up today? Are you thankful for his expiation? Come on. Amen. Are you thankful for his reconciliation? Amen. Amen. And how many of you can say, since I got reconciled to him, a whole lot of reconciling has been happening this way too, because it sets something in motion when you get right with God. Amen. So let's just go to him and let's thank the Lord. Father, I just thank you right now with all of my heart. The Lord, you expiated our sins. You remove the guilt and you remove the sin. Our scapegoat, it was all put on you. And you carried them away never to return again. The sins will never return again. And Lord, we thank you for reconciliation that right now we can worship God in spirit and in truth because you joined our hand with the Father's hand in reconciliation. Thank you, Lord. Now with our heads bowed, there may be just one person here, I don't know, but just one. You say, Jeff, I'm focusing on that horizontal part of the cross. That horizontal part of the cross. I need forgiveness. I, I need to run into his arms. I need to let him love me. I need to let him embrace me. I'm focused on that horizontal part. And I want to I wanna come to him. I want to get right with him today. I want to let his reconciliation be good for me, be true for me, be experienced by me. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. 
And if just one person in here today gets right with the Lord and comes to him, the whole service was worth it. So I want to pray right now. If that's you, run into his arms. Let's pray this prayer. Pray it with me right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose from the dead to save me, to reconcile me to God and to take my sins away, never to return. Forgive me my sin, Jesus, and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I receive you into my heart. In Jesus' name.